Stay with us following Crosswalk for this week's Cross-Culture Q&A. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross-Culture Church in Raleigh. Have you ever heard somebody uh, make this statement? Man, that scared the hell out of me. But what if we could tweak that statement just a little bit? What if we tweak that statement just a little bit and we said... Man, that scared me out of hell. Hell. Today, it's primarily used as a cuss word or as a joke. But in the Bible, hell is no laughing matter. Think about this for a minute. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't God be angry over this stuff? If unholiness didn't make him angry, would he really be holy? If unrighteousness did not stir his wrath, would he really be righteous? If he does not deal with injustice, could we really say that he is just? It is the very nature of God that shows us that there must be a judgment. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today in our series, The Revelation, Pastor Clay takes us to one of the hardest passages of Scripture in all the Bible. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 13 aren't considered hard because the interpretation is so difficult, but what makes this passage so hard is its content tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Nowhere in the scripture is the reality of hell any clearer than in these five verses. And nowhere are the consequences of living life without God more sobering. The reality of hell is not an easy subject to discuss. But as we'll hear today, the cost of not speaking up is eternal. We're glad you've joined us as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. Have you ever heard somebody uh, make this statement? I'm going to shock y'all. You ever heard somebody make this statement? Man, that scared the hell out of me. Y'all ever heard, you ever heard that? Now, I realize that most time when somebody makes a statement like that, they're really not thinking about hell at all when they make that statement. And just me making that statement has probably freaked a few of you out even here right now. But what if we could tweak that statement just a little bit? What if we tweak that statement just a little bit and, and we said, man, that scared me out of hell. Is that even possible? I confess there certainly are plenty of preachers who through the years have used that tactic as a way to fill up the altar and fill up the aisles and fill up their roles with people. Fire and brimstone is kind of type preaching that it used to be referred to as. And what I have to say to you today may sound like that I'm joining in on that parade. The truth is, though, I believe that fear is a poor motivator. And uh, the reason I believe it's a poor motivator is due at least partly to the fact that fear is usually only effective if, if the danger or the fear is imminent. And while none of us are promised the sunrise tomorrow, most of us are pretty sure we'll have one. So fear, in, in my belief, is really not a very good motivator. I've said for years that uh, you can never argue anyone into heaven. You can only love them into heaven. 
And, and that's true, I believe that. I would add to that, in light of what we're talking about today, I would add to that, you can never scare anyone into heaven. But that does not mean that men and women do not have a need to know of the reality of hell. And nowhere is the reality of hell more clear in the Bible than it is in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 13. We're on this year-long quest, this journey of walking through the book of Revelation. Can you believe it? We're up to uh, uh, Revelation chapter 14. We're we're halfway through the 14th chapter uh, already. If you brought a Bible with you, I encourage you to open to that passage of Scripture. The text is going to be up on the screen as well. If you like to take notes, there's an outline on the back of your information sheet that you may want to take advantage of. But we approach Revelation 14 today, quite honestly, soberly, humbly, realistically. For thus saith the Lord. Revelation 14, 9 through 13. Then another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Join me in prayer this morning, please. Father, um, this, this is a sobering passage of Scripture. It's, it's an awesome thought to even contemplate, and it's not very popular in the culture in which we live today. And yet your word is your word. It is truth without mixture of error. And we are called to study, I am called to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And that includes this subject matter today, the reality of hell. And so I I pray for myself and I pray for each person in this room and each person who will listen to our podcast. Uh, Lord God, I pray that you would accomplish your purposes in our lives. And that we would receive your word for what you desire it to be in our lives. And that we would act accordingly, act upon it as you would desire for us to do so. Thank you for each person who's here today, Father God. And I'm just asking you to meet each of us right where we are, right where you know we are. And bring us, Lord God, in this journey of life and eternity to your place, your purpose, your will to be done, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 through 13. We're going to jump into verse 9 here right away uh, as, we, as we begin to get into this text. The first thing we hear is this, then another angel, a third one. As the text says, this is in fact the third angel which has uh, shown up. 
the first two angels we saw uh, last week in the earlier part of Revelation chapter 14. This is, this third one is actually the third of six angels that follow in consecutive order in Revelation chapter 14. Six angels that come and, and pronounce judgment. All six of them are connected in some way to God's judgment. Now listen to me. All six of these angels who come in Revelation 14 are bringing and have some connection to God's judgment. The first angel that we looked at last week in chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, and announces that there is a time of judgment that has come. That's what he says. The time of judgment has come. That's really what he says. And he adds to that. And if you haven't come to God, you'd best do it now because your time is up. The, the, he's, remember, chapter 14... I don't have time to do all this, but chapter 14 is, a, is like a fast-forward. It's like pause on the DVD and God fast-forward to show us how the rest of it comes up. And we'll see it played out in chapters 15 and 16 and following. But uh, the first angel says, it's time, judgment is coming, turn to God, this is it. Second angel comes along in chapter 14 and verse 8 and announces that judgment has come and is falling on, the text says, Babylon the Great. And if you were here last week, you may remember that. But uh, just to remind you, or if you're here for the first time, that, that I believe symbolically Babylon the Great stands for or represents the Antichrist's political and economic empire that he will set up during the time of the tribulation period. He will rule the world, uh, the, the Antichrist, his, his false prophet. We looked at him a few weeks ago, the idol that is set up in the temple, all of those types of things, and he will, he will rule. And, and the second angel says, now it's come, judgment is coming on Babylon the Great, on the Antichrist, on his political world empire that seemed indestructible. It will fall when God's hand of judgment falls upon it. Now comes this third angel, and this third angel announces judgment, as the text says, the third angel announces judgment on anyone who worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, I uh, don't have time to go into deep detail about it again. Uh, I did discuss this a few weeks ago, this mark of the beast and this whole idea and, and that sort of thing. But just to bring you up to speed, uh, back in Revelation uh, chapter 13, it said this. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Um, if I know that whole number and name thing can get kind of confusing. If you weren't with us, I suggest you go back and listen to the podcast where I kind of explain how the Greeks use their alphabet to also uh, be their numerical system as well. And so as a result of that, it meant that every, every, wor- every letter, every word, every name uh, in the Greek language has a numerical value to it. And, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, and, and you may want to go back and, and look at it. But whatever this... Whatever this mark of the beast is, what is clear is that the Antichrist and his false prophet use this mark to control the world and to bring the world to a place of submission to them and to bring the world to a place of worship of the Antichrist and of his idol that has been set up. So, that's what happens in verse 9 as he declares that judgment is coming on them. And then... Verse 10, 
comes in. Now listen, it is not easy. It's never easy to go against the flow, is it? It's, it's never easy to face persecution, both in, in this world even today, but certainly in the world to come, in that tribulation period. It, it will not be easy for people to go against the flow. It will not be easy for people to take a stand against the Antichrist and against his false prophet and, and not worship the beast and not take the mark of the beast. It, it, it will not be easy. But if they do cave in, if they do take the mark of the beast, one thing is very, very clear from God's perspective. Judgment is coming. His wrath is going to be poured out, as the text says. There's no escaping this. There's no way around this. And the text says, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Very interesting, because in verse 8, if you were with us last week, you may remember that the angel announced that that, uh, that the Antichrist and his system was going to to offer and, and provide to the world to drink of the, of the immorality that they will produce. In other words, the Antichrist will basically uh, get the world drunk on immorality. It will be a time of, of lawlessness and, and, in some sense, and sinless, sinfulness and, and decadence and, and just a great time of evil in the world. And, and the angel here, the third angel announces, if they drink of that wine then they will drink fully of the wine of the wrath of God. Mixed full. In other words, that when judgment comes, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me, when judgment comes, when final judgment comes, God's judgment, His wrath will not be diluted, it will not be softened, it will not be lessened by His grace or His mercy or even His patience. God is being patient now. God is being uh, gracious now. You do understand that, don't you? I, I, I just uh, looked at a few scriptures this week that just so blessed my heart. And, and I just, can I just remind you of how often scripture refers to God's patience and loving kindness with us? Uh, Exodus chapter 34, we find this. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Uh, Numbers chapter 14, I think it is. Yeah, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Now listen, are you catching all these? Nehemiah chapter 9. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Uh, Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 140. 45, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Uh, and rend your heart and not your garments. This is Joel, I think, chapter 2. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is, he is what? Say it. Just say it. Gracious and compassionate. You know what's coming, don't you? Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. And we know Jonah wasn't happy about this. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Yes, he does. Nahum, uh, 
chapter 1, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's an important aspect. In a whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. And Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that's enough. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness. Where is he? Come on. He's not slow, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. I am so grateful that God is patient and slow to respond uh, in anger to me. I'm so grateful that God, that God worked in my life and drew me unto himself. I'm so grateful that God is, has loving kindness towards me and that he, and that he, and that he created circumstances and that he uh, worked in my life in such a way that I, until I came to a place of repentance and brokenness over my sin and entered into a relationship with him. I'm so grateful that God did all that. But if you and I get nothing else out of this morning, we ought to get out of Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 13, that God's patience and his loving kindness with sin does not mean that God will, will forget sin. does not mean that His patience and loving kindness with sinners means that God will excuse sin. God will deal with mankind's sin one way or the other. And His judgment will come. Now, I, I, I know sometimes that, it, that it's hard to, to think about this idea of God being angry and, and, and all that that kind of stuff. I, oh, I don't know. I just, I just, I don't know. God being angry and, and everything else. And, but listen, think about this for a minute. Why, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't God be angry over this stuff? If, if unholiness didn't make him angry, would he really be holy? If unrighteousness did not stir his wrath, would he really be righteous? If he does not deal with injustice, could we really say that he is just? Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen, this is very important. It is, it is the very nature of God that shows us that there must be a judgment. That in his very nature, who he is reveals to us that he must deal with sin and that his judgment will come. And so, the BP squared, the big picture biblical principle, we're kind of building it this morning. If you want to fill in blanks at the bottom, you can, but it, it, it starts out like this. It looks like this. God's judgment will be just. Nobody, well, but wait a minute, no, I, well, I, no, no. God's judgment will be just. Now, watch this as uh, it follows in verse uh, 10, the latter part of verse 10. It says, and he, meaning the person that falls under God's judgment, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Brimstone, as I understand it, is another name for sulfur. And we know that sulfur causes fire to burn hotter than it even normally does. And to make matters worse, if that's possible, that this judgment comes in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, exactly what that means, I can't clearly define for you. Are they, can they actually see them, I'm not sure. But I do believe at the very least, this idea of in the presence of the angels, in the presence of the Lamb, I do believe at the very least 
This is, this, is, this is what I think. At the very least, that it means that at the forefront of people's minds, in the midst of the, of the judgment that they have fallen under, in the midst of that, I think at the forefront of their minds will be this thought. Why? Why didn't I listen to the message? Why didn't I, why didn't I kneel before the Lamb, surrender my life to the Lamb, Jesus Christ? Why? 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 Didn't I do that? Uh, we recently switched from uh, cable to satellite at our house, trying to save some money, of which we didn't really do, but it was a nice, a nice try. Um, a little bit, say a little bit. But we switched, switched from cable to, to satellite. And I was flipping on, through the channel guide the other day, which is maddening, by the way. Um, and one of the movie channels that we don't get, one of the movie channels it was running a movie and the title of the movie was, you ready for this? The title of the movie was, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. Does this sound like a party to you? I mean, seriously. I was thinking about uh, an old Billy Joel song. And I think Billy Joel was a, is a great songwriter. There was a song that he wrote uh, uh, years ago entitled, Only the Good Die Young. Which, by the way, is not true. But in the song, there's this line that says... I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints because sinners have much more fun. Only the good die young. I, I ask you, you read it with me. Does this sound like fun? No, God's judgment will be just and severe. There, there, there's no way around it, ladies and gentlemen. God's judgment will be just and severe. Which then brings us to verse 11 and we find the third part of the BP squared in there. Listen, I, I know this is not easy, all right? And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. God's judgment, ladies and gentlemen, quite honestly, here it is, this is the total package. It will be just, it will be severe, and it will be forever. The ages upon the ages, I think is the, literally the way it says in the Greek. Time without end, tormented forever and ever and ever. Now listen, I, I read those words, as I said, very soberly. And it's not, it's not easy to read those words. For some people, I mean, for some it is, all right, right? Uh, the Hitlers of the world, the Stalins, the Osama bin Ladens. I don't mind thinking about guys like that spend an eternity in torment. Guys like that spend an eternity in, in hell. That doesn't bother me at all. But surely not my neighbor, not my coworker, certainly not my family member. But then I, I can't get away from God's word that says all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how good you are, how great a parent you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are or poor you are. It doesn't matter. about it. It, it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God's judgment will be just and severe and it will be forever. Um, because this idea of, by the way, of eternal torment, I know that it's hard sometimes for people to just really think about because it's so difficult. Uh, some people have uh, developed a, a belief system known as soul annihilation. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, if you've not heard the name, you've probably heard explanation of it, even if you didn't know it. Soul annihilation basically is the belief that, well, if you didn't believe in Jesus, you know, you should have, and you're not going to get into heaven, but 
a loving God would never condemn someone to, to hell for all of eternity. A loving God would never punish someone for all of, e, of eternity. So, uh, so if you don't, you don't get into heaven, but you just cease to exist. You, it's soul annihilation. Now, let me say this. That sells great. People have no problem. That's okay, I can handle that. I can choose this Jesus path if I want, want you know, the stuff you got. But if I don't, I just go to sleep when it's all over. That, that sells great. The problem with that belief system is it is anthrocentric and not theocentric. It is man-centered and not God-centered. God has said, and I believe, and as I said it last week, quoting Andy Stanley, we believe that everybody's going to live forever somewhere. And so the reality of where that somewhere is, is based on what God has done and the gift that he has given in his son. And while man may not like to talk about an idea of eternal judgment, God apparently has no problem discussing it. Let me show you just a few. Matthew chapter 3 says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Watch this. And he will gather his wheat. You can, you can gain the analogy here. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew chapter 25, uh, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the, what kind of fire? Say it, say it, say it again, eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Mark chapter 9, if, you, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, it's better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell into the what? Unquenchable fire. Now that's, that's a parable Jesus telling. He's not telling you to cut your hands off. Uh, I preached on that a couple of years ago, but you understand the, the point here. And, and then of course uh, Luke chapter 16, uh, the story of, the, of Lazarus and the rich man. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. What's, is that sobering? In hell. It's the next statement after he dies. In hell where he was tormented, where he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony here. Eternal torment. It is a reality of God's word. Okay, I, I, that's, I know, that's hard. That's hard, but listen to me. Let's look at verse 12 real quick. Here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. In other words, uh, what, what John is saying is, he says, this is, this is it. This, is, this knowledge, this idea of, this, of this, this gracious God who has loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, this, this God who is also holy and righteous and just and will deal with sin, this is what, what motivates us the saints, the followers of Jesus, what it's referring to. It's what motivates us in our walk with him to, to live our lives according to him and, and to his honor and to his glory. This is what motivates us. Listen to me. Not fear. It's not the fear of that. No, it's out of gratitude. The motivation is gratitude for what he has done for me so that I, I have no worries of ever facing this because I've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been adopted into His family. His Holy Spirit has given me a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Out of gratitude for what He has done for me, I find motivation to live for Him. 
And not only out of gratitude, but I would also say, a second reason I'd also say would be out of compassion. Compassion for those who without a relationship with Jesus Christ are staring a judgment, staring right in the face of a judgment that will be just, severe, and eternal. And they are one heartbeat away from there. Just one. So, out of gratitude for God, listen, I, I, could, I could run off that. I, I really believe I could run off that the rest of my life. Out of, out of gratitude for God for what He's done for me. Not only es- escaping hell, all right? I know. Not only the promise of heaven, but just the difference He's made in my life. Now, can I, you know, I, mm, I can't even imagine where my life would be today if it wasn't for Jesus. Gratitude in my heart to Him and compassion. Uh, I, you know, I've got, I've got a bunch of favorite, my favorite sayings, right? I say it all the time. My favorite saying is, i got about 67 of them. One of my favorite sayings is, man, we ought to give a rip. Out of compassion for those who, who don't even know that God loved them so much that He, that he sent His Son to make payment for their sins. Um, I've had the honor and the privilege of speaking at Southeastern Seminary uh, three times now in my life. On one of those occasions... Uh, I brought a message, and in the message, uh, I, had a, I had a line in there that after the, the service, one of the evangelism professors, Alvin Reed, came up to me and said, man, I'm going to steal that line from you. He said, don't worry, I'll, I'll always give you credit, uh, but I'm going I'm I'm to use that line. Now, I don't know whether it gives me credit or not, but this is what I know. I still want that line, I still want that statement to always be true in my life. And the statement is this, I want the devil to be glad when I'm gone. I really do. Nothing... Um, I think would bring me greater joy than to know that I keep the devil ticked off because of my desire to honor Christ with my life, to live to his honor and glory, and to try and share with as many people as I possibly can in one way or another that God has made provision for their life if they would come to him. Oh, but you like that? Aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid that you'll be attacked by the devil? If you, I mean, if you go, you know, aren't you afraid you're going to be attacked by the devil? Oh, oh yeah, okay. Well, let's just keep our mouths closed while men and women slide into hell without ever knowing of God's love because it's more comfortable for us if we don't speak up or speak out or go or give or tell. We got to. We've got to. Um, Boy, I wish I really had time to deal with verse 13. We could park a long time there. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. In its context, it's referring to those who will, who will reject the Antichrist, who will come to the real Christ, who will suffer. They'll refuse to take the mark of the beast. They will suffer. Most of them will die for their faith. It will be hard. And, and the what verse 13 speaks into all of our lives is that no matter what it is about in your life, no matter how hard it is at time, that anything you do for the glory of God and for the cause of Christ, anytime you live your life, you make decisions, you think, you, all of this stuff, when you do that, it does not go unnoticed by heaven. And God fully intends to reward you and me and those saints of the tribulation period when that day comes when we stand before him. The reason I keep bugging you about this seven challenge, the reason Bill and I drag this sign out every week from storage and bring it down here and set it up, the reason I keep asking you to to come down and take one of these pens and sign your name on the board and and take that seven challenge is because, because this, I believe every bit of this, I believe this is real, and I know chapter 14 misses a really hard chapter, and this is as hard as it gets, but I believe this is real. 
And I believe this is the destiny of men and women without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, quite honestly, I've been asking you since January. When we started the seven challenges, I've been, I've been asking you if you would consider taking the, the seven challenges. I'm asking you now, why wouldn't you take the seven challenge? If this is true and, and hell is the eternity of those who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, why wouldn't we commit to praying for seven people that, as far as we know, don't have a relationship with Jesus? To pray for seven people seven, every day of the week. And why wouldn't we pray for ourselves that God would give us eyes to see people the way he sees them, ears to hear them the way he hears them, and a heart to care about them the way he cares about them? Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we make a commitment to attempt to make seven touches during the week? Expressions of love, give an iVite card, uh, give them a gospel track, whatever it might be, at least attempt to make those touches during the week. Why, why wouldn't we? Do you know why I think we don't? I'm going I'm to try and fly through this real quick. You know why I think sometimes some of us don't? It's because individually we think, I, I just don't know that I can make a difference. Either we feel inadequate, we feel so small, or we feel whatever. I, I just don't really think that I am equipped right, or, or I, I just don't think I can make a difference. I know we don't say that out loud, but I really think that's what it is. I want to tell you a story. As quickly as I possibly can, I want to tell you a story. I've learned a few new facts about the story since I first told it. I told it a couple of years ago. I want to tell it again. I don't mind telling stories a second time um, because, number one, if I know I've told it before, it means I'm not losing it. If I know it, I'm, I'm not going senile yet. Number two, God is always gracing us by sending new people our way who haven't heard that story. And number three, even if you've heard the story before, the truth of it is still the truth. So act like you've never heard it. In 1950, a pastor in England by the name of Francis Dixon was speaking in his church, and he asked a youth leader by the name of Peter to share his testimony. And Peter stood up and he said, Years ago, I was in Sydney, Australia, and I found myself on walking down George Street. And a, and a man came up to me and he said, Hello, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, Please don't be offended, but do you know tonight, if you died tonight where you would spend eternity? The Bible says you'll spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. Think about it. That's all. Toodaloo. And he was gone. Peter said, that idea grasped my heart. So I'd never thought about where I would spend eternity. And he said, when I got back to England, I sought out a pastor and, and, I, and I entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not that you have to seek out a pastor, by the way. Uh, that was in 1950. In 1953... Reverend Dixon was holding a revival service at his church, and six young men were asked to stand up and share their testimony. One of those young men stood up and said, years ago, I was in Sydney, Australia, and I was walking down George Street, and a, and a man came up to me and said, pardon me, would you mind if I ask you a question? Now, please don't be offended, but do you know if you died tonight where you would spend eternity? The Bible says you'll spend eternity in one or two places, heaven or hell. Think about it. That's all. Toodaloo. And he was gone. The man, Norwell was his name said, I, I couldn't get away from that idea. Where will I spend eternity? And he said, it wasn't long after that that I trusted Christ as my Savior. Later that year, Reverend Dixon was doing revival services in Adelaide, Australia. And he felt compelled to tell the story about Peter and Norwell. And he did, in the midst of the story, a man stood up and said, Reverend Dixon, that's my story. Years ago, I was in Sydney, Australia. I was walking down George Street, and a man came up to me and said, pardon me, do you mind if I ask you a question? If you were to die tonight, you know where you'd spend eternity? The Bible says spend eternity in one or two places. Heaven or hell, think about it. That's all toodaloo. Fast forward. He said, I, I couldn't get away from that idea. It just gripped my heart, and I just couldn't get away from that, from that idea. The man's name, I think, was George. I think it was his last name, but well, George. 
from Adelaide, uh, Reverend Dixon went on to Perth. And he told the story in, in Perth. He felt led to tell the story about uh, Peter and Norwell and George. And at the end of the service, a, young, uh, a Baptist deacon came up to him after the service and he said, he said, Reverend Dixon, that's my story. Years ago, I was in Sydney, Australia, and I was... Y'all got it, right? And he said, so, you know, it's remarkable. Later, he was back in his church and he felt led to tell the story about Peter and Norwell and George and the Baptist deacon. Sounds like a joke that a drunk would tell at a bar, wouldn't it? Hey, do you hear what about Peter and the Baptist deacon? <laughs> so he tells the story. After, after the story, a young lady comes up to him and says, Reverend Dixon, that's my story. Years ago, I was in Sydney, Australia. He, he was in, he was in a, a Methodist church in Keswick doing a revival service. Another person came up to him. Same story. He was in Jamaica later, told the story. Same story. So the next time he was in Australia, he found a friend of his, and he said, listen, have you ever heard of a guy that, that walks up and down George Street telling people about, about heaven and hell and eternity? He said, I do know who he is. His name is Mr. Jenner. Mr. Jenner was still alive. They went to see Mr. Jenner, who now was a very elderly man, and he was dying of Parkinson's disease. He wasn't able to get out anymore. And, and this, this was the part that I really didn't know. I'd never heard of the story. Mr. Jenner said, for 25 years, okay, all right, Seven challenge, all right? Seven names, seven days of the week, seven touches. Mr. Jenner said, for 25 years, I walked up to at least 10 people every day. He said, I walked up to hundreds in the course of a year. I walked up to thousands of my life. And here's what he said at the end. He's crying. And at the end, he said, and you know what? I've never led one single person to Christ. He didn't, he didn't even know. Listen, why don't you leave it up to God, whether he can use you or not? Why don't you leave it up to God instead of deciding for yourself that, oh, I, I could never speak up or I could, I could never pray. I might forget one day. Or I, well, why don't you leave that up to God and just let God be God? What a powerful passage of Scripture. As Pastor Clay showed us today, God's judgment will be just, severe, and eternal. You and I may sometimes think we can't make a difference in others' lives, but like the story we heard today about Mr. Jenner, if we'll just show up and speak up, God will do the rest. Maybe you have a friend, coworker, or loved one who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. God wants to use you to touch their life and bring them into a relationship with Jesus. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. 
Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. It's Q&A time uh, this morning at uh, Cross Culture, and uh, this is a, a Q&A that could take a long time, and I'm going to try my best to make sure it doesn't, because um, we've got plenty to do today. But the, the Q&A today, the question is this. What does the Bible say about the reason why, and by the way, this is written just exactly the way it was written on the card. What does the Bible say about the reason why God did not want us to eat from the tree of life slash knowledge? What did he not want us to know? Well, a uh, couple things. First, he wants us to know that we're actually that there are actually two different trees. We want to make sure that we clarify on that because uh, you see here we've got, the way it was written was was uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil slash life or vice versa. There are actually two trees: the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. In Genesis chapter two and verse nine, uh, we find this: out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. In the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So both of them existed and were there in the garden. So having distinguished between the two of them, then we might break it down this way and say, then why uh, did God not want us to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Let's deal with that one first one. Why did God not want us to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What was the big deal about that? Well, um, well, let's, we, we do have a text. Let's look at where it says that. Genesis uh, chapter 2, I think it's verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Uh, so clearly Scripture commanded uh, us Adam and Eve to not eat uh, from that particular tree in the garden. That's, that's quite clear. Uh, to answer that question, though, we probably need to answer a, a bigger question, a greater question, probably the, more, uh, the question that's on more people's mind. And that question is this, uh, why have the tree in the first place? Have you ever wondered that? Okay, God, just leave it out. <laughs> then we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in now as it is. Well, Quite honestly, we could spend the next six weeks discussing that topic and never come to the end of it. It's lost somewhere in the mystery of God and, and how he operates and all that he does. But if I can encapsulate and give you the, the, the short version of my answer, uh, it would probably look something like this. The, the, the truth is you can't really love unless you have the choice not to love. Do you understand that? You can't really love somebody unless you actually have the choice to not love them. And uh, add it to that, the same thing. You can't really obey unless you have the choice to disobey. The truth is, uh, the tree had to be in the garden in order for us to experience part of what God's desire was for our life. At least part of the idea of being created in the image of God means that God has created us in such a way that, that we are involved in this, in this relationship with Him. Maybe the question is not so much about what 
God didn't want us to know. Although certainly there were some things he didn't want us to know. Certainly God did not want us to know uh, the the pain of evil or sin. Certainly God did not want us to know uh, the shame and the guilt of, of sin. Adam and Eve had never experienced that before. Certainly God did not want us to experience the consequences of evil or sin. They knew it. They were. They, they knew it intellectually. God told them, but they had not experienced it up until that point in their life. So certainly, there are some things God did not want us to know for our own good. But the question really maybe is not so much about what God didn't want us to know, but what God wanted us to know. And what God wanted us to know was Him. To know Him in relationship. To know Him in a way that He created us for that that we could not know, apparently, if we did not have some sense of choice. Now, I freely admit there is mystery here somewhere in the sovereign plan of God and the free will of man. Uh, There's mystery in how God operates, and, and there's a tension there that you and I have to live with. But the truth is, it's about what God wanted us to know. He wanted us to know Him. So, uh, to deal with, real quickly, with the last question, question, well, then why did God not want us to eat from the tree of life? We find that in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, having experienced it, he must not reach out and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove man out and east of the garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim with a flaming whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life. God, as best I understand, again, this subject we could discuss for hours upon hours upon hours, but I believe the best explanation, I can give it to you in one word, why God, after Adam and Eve sinned, why God did not want them to eat of the tree of life. And it's simply this, love. Love. Because I believe had Adam and Eve participated in the tree of life, had they eaten of the tree of life while In that sinful state, in that sinful state, they would have stayed. And God, out of love and out of grace, drove them from the garden so that in His sovereign, perfect timing, He could send His Son to be the payment for not only Adam and Eve's sin, but for ours as well. There's Q&A for today. 